This podcast is brought to you by Aetna. Learn how Aetna is working to build a healthier world by visiting aetnastory.com. Hi, it's Doro, and I'm so excited to announce that the Achieving Optimal Health Conference is just around the corner on October 26th at Georgetown University. For our Health Gig listeners, we have a special offer. If you sign up by September 20th, you'll get $50 off your ticket. Just go to AchievingOptimalHealthConference.com and use the code HEALTHGIG. Get ready to create a happier and healthier life story. People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Trisha and I are thrilled today because we have a very special guest on Health Gig today, and her name is Sharon Salzberg. And Welcome, Sharon. We're just glad you're here. Thank you so much. Yeah, we're glad you're here. And Sharon, there's so much we want to talk to you about, but as I think I mentioned earlier, your book, Real Happiness, it was sort of like a mindfulness Bible to us. And I brought my copy down And it's all underlined and (laughs) tagged and all of that. And so we thank you for that book and we thank you for your work in mindfulness. Mm -hmm. And so we just want to begin by talking to you about your, we'd love to have our listeners know your story and how you got into it. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Very large question. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's great. I went to college at the State University of New York at Buffalo in 1968. And in my sophomore year, because there was a philosophy requirement, I just kind of arbitrarily pointed at the Asian philosophy course and said, I'll do that one. You know? <laughs> uh, and it, it completely changed my life in a couple of uh, most notable ways. One was that you know, I had a very traumatic and chaotic childhood and like for many family systems, my my family just didn't ever really talk about it. And so I didn't know what to do with all of those feelings inside of me. And there I was in college as a sophomore doing this Asian philosophy class. And I started talking about the Buddha and the Buddha's perspective on life. And part of which is life has suffering in it, you know, which translated immediately to my mind is it's not just you. You don't have to feel isolated you don't have to feel so important, different. This is a part of life. Therefore, you're a part of life. And it, that itself is like this huge liberation. And then I heard in that class that there were, there were practices one could do called meditation that would really make you a whole lot happier and that they were practical, they were, they were direct. And I, you know, looked around Buffalo, New York. I just did not see it. And the university also had like a program, an independent study program. And if you created a project that they liked, you could go anywhere in the world for a year and then come back and do your final year. So I created a project that says, I want to go to India and study meditation. And by this this time, it's 1970. And they said yes. And and off I went. And that is actually how I began. Wow. That's amazing. That's incredible. And then you went on to... To do what? You started an actual program in Massachusetts. So mm-hmm. Tell us about that. Mm-hmm. Well, I left India. I came back to New York. I finished school. I went back to India. And I finally came back in 1974 
for what I thought was going to be a very brief visit uh, before I went back to India, and it turned out to be really kind of the rest of my life. So <laughs> I came back with the uh, kind of director from one of my teachers, this woman named Deepamat, to teach myself, which I thought was ridiculous. I mean, I, you know, I couldn't teach. And so, but I kept ending up with my my friends, Joseph Goldstein and Jack Cornfield. I kept ending up in situations where we'd be invited to teach. And we would say yes, and then, you know, that retreat or whatever would be over. And, and then suddenly a new invitation would come in. I began to realize that yes, my life, my life actually was here, and it was in 1976 that we actually bought this property in Worcester County, Massachusetts, the town of Barry. Which really, we moved in Valentine's Day, 76, and we opened right away as the Insight Meditation Society. Mm. And to this day, it's active. People come there for retreats. Is that is that the purpose of it? Yeah, it is. It's an intensive retreat center. We have retreats of you know two days, three days, seven days, nine days. We have one long retreat in the fall, which is six weeks or three months. You could do either. And most of the retreats are intensive, silent retreats. There's always teacher contact and you know ability to talk in that way. But it's a kind of social silence, which is very interesting because we're so used to the opposite. And you know, many times people will come. And they'll say, I don't know if I can be silent for three days or whatever. Or my partner doesn't think I can be silent. Or one person came and said they're doing a bedding pool in my office because they don't <laughs> think I can be silent. You know, but it's actually a beautiful experience where it's like for once in our lives, we don't have to present ourselves to others as interesting or bold or anything. We can just be. Mm. Um, and it's such a relief. So. We have some exceptions. We have a retreat for teenagers every year that's not silent. And uh, <laughs> a couple of others, but, but mostly it's, it's a very deep immersion into your own self. Mm. So a lot of our listeners are interested and are mindfulness practitioners. But as my mom always said, we can't assume that because if you assume something, you make an ass out of you and me. <laughs> so not all of our listeners know about mindfulness. And so if someone wanted to dip their toe in the water of mindfulness, Mm -hmm. what would you say to them? You mean in terms of actual advice about the practicalities of that? Sure. Yeah, exactly. Where do do you begin? And I guess, and why would you begin? And I think that's, that's the reason for your, (laughs) why? Why? Like why? And it, you know, so yeah, if you could answer those questions, that would be good, Sharon. I think it's really good to to read or, or listen to recordings or whatever, but to get some sense of the kind of the landscape of meditation, because there are many methods and there are many styles, and and you do sort of want to know why in the world you would do something like that. And when I first came back from India in 1974 as a teacher, because my teacher had told me to teach, and maybe I'd be introduced at a party or some social situation as a meditation teacher, and people would kind of sidle away like, oh, that's so weird. (laughs) You know, these days, which is, you know, a lot of years later, in that same kind of situation, people will commonly say, I'm so stressed out, I could could really use some of that. Or occasionally they'll say, oh, my partner should really meet you. They could really use it. (laughs) But very commonly these days they say, people say, oh, I tried that once, I failed at it. Right. Mm -hmm. We hear that a lot, Um, too. You know, and we don't believe you can ever fail at it. And it's very intriguing what we were expecting to happen 
that made you think you failed? Because very often people have some pretty unrealistic, unjust, and unkind expectations of what they should be experiencing meditating. A very common one is that, you know, your mind's supposed to go blank, you're not supposed to have any thoughts, it's just supposed to be totally empty, and it's just not like that. You know, we're not concerned with the presence or the absence of thoughts. We're concerned and empowered by the possibility of changing our relationship to thoughts. Mm. choosing which ones we want to take to heart, which ones we want to let go of, and so many things. And so you cannot fail at it. You can't have the wrong experience. And so people often go in with pretty harsh expectations, and I like to really try to work with so that we can loosen the grip of those and just have a good time. It's an exploration. It's like an experiment. Mm-hmm. Um, and then find a method, you know, the original foundational methods, and this speaks to why one does this to begin with, usually focus on concentration, helping us have somewhat more stable attention, feel more centered. So we're not just like blown away by everything that happens, you know, and very unsteady. And it's just a training. It takes practice because we're so used to being distracted and fragmented and half-hearted and all of those things. But we actually practice getting more concentrated. On the basis of that, we practice being more mindful, which can mean a lot of different things in the sense it means, first of all, in touch, you know, like we're feeling when we're feeling it. and We know layers of what's actually going on, not just the most superficial. And we don't get lost in the momentum being created by others around us and, you know, getting all agitated or whatever. And so with mindfulness, we're more quickly of what our experience is. And we can also distinguish between the actual experience and anything we may be adding on to it, just the force of habit. So, for example, if, you know, we say if you have like a physical discomfort or pain and, or heartache or, or disappointment, one of the most common patterns people have is to start projecting it into the future, like what's it going to feel like tomorrow? Mm. What's it going to feel like next week? What's it going to feel like next month? So not only do we have the actual discomfort, we now have all that anticipated stress, which may not ever come to pass in fact. (laughs) And we're just like so burdened by it. So we begin to see those things and that's just habit. And we learn to let go Mm -hmm. of the kind of unhealthy, unhelpful dwelling in the past or in the future. And, And we get much more aware, not only of what's happening, but we have a very different relationship to it because we're not adding on all that old stuff anymore. So we develop concentration, we develop mindfulness, and we also develop in loving kindness and compassion. We learn, you know, the best environment, for example, for us to make progress in the meditation. In fact, it's not a harsh, punishing environment. It's one of self-compassion and self-care. And that's how we start again the quickest. That's how we have the most resilience. And there are lots of surprises in there. You know, when we learn to be kinder to ourselves. And so mm-hmm. these are the actual trainings, and that's why we do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess that we do it so that we can experience life, right? So that's why we yeah. do it. Yeah. So, and what is happening in this life, in this moment right now? Well, and also to understand it, you know, because I think there's, you know, an example I use from because the phrase amuses me from the olden days of email. Um, <laughs> there used to be a feature if your server was AOL and you were writing an email to someone on AOL, 
and maybe you're quite angry and, and impatient and annoyed, and you don't even recognize that because we can be so cut off from ourselves. And mm. so you go off to the computer, you type out the email, you press send, and maybe two hours later you go, whoops. <laughs> I guess it said that in a way that was kind of hostile. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe not so likely to get me what I want. So in the olden days of email, if you were on AOL and your the recipient was on AOL and I had not read it yet, there was this magic button. Oh, we not, yeah, exactly. Set. Yeah, you could take it back. Something in your remember that? Yeah, yes. in your computer, like reached out and pulled it back. And yes, I once unsent a message to someone. It wasn't nasty, really, but <laughs> at all. But I had just thought better of it. And, Right away, she wrote to me, and she said, the weirdest thing just happened. <laughs> and I wrote back, and I said, what? And she said, you know, there was this email from you, and it just, like, disappeared. And I wrote back, and I said, that's so strange. Wow. <laughs> but rather than having counting on life giving us an unsend button, which it doesn't, AOL doesn't even anymore, it's not a small thing to know what we're feeling as we're feeling it. Mm. And we have choice then. Maybe we are feeling angry and we write out that email and maybe, we, you know, we think this is a time to send it. Maybe we think I don't want to send it from this space because I might mm-hmm. be missing something really crucial. Let me wait. Or you might decide to send it to yourself. I've heard that from people. I send some really controversial emails to myself. Oh, that's good. See what it's like to receive them. You know? Oh, yeah. That's a good idea. Um, you know, we have, we have a lot of options when we have become more mindful. Mm. I think one of the ha- hardest things about the practice is feeling those feelings. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I think that can sometimes discourage people because it's hard to feel those feelings. And mm-hmm. how, what do you tell people and how do you tell people to power through that and just sort of get on the other side of that? Or maybe you never do, but how do, mm-hmm. how do you talk about that? You know, it's to be expected that one feels the whole range of what we're capable of feeling. You know, there's some beautiful, I mean, rapturous feelings that come. So much happiness. I remember sitting there thinking, I'm just sitting here. You know, I'm not doing anything. <laughs> Where did all this come from? And it comes. And, and there's some very difficult feelings and things maybe we've run long and hard to avoid. And here they are. Or things where, you know, some emotions pop up and we get an immediate signal, oh, time to take a nap. You know, so. Right, right. um, (laughs) You know, we have a lot of avoidance mechanisms. Yeah, or time to to go get that chocolate chip cookie. Yes. (laughs) That's right, you know. So it's not exactly that we want to power through them, but we want to develop a different relationship here too. It's like, and I also, I don't think it's good to have that kind of martial Image, I I often tell people, lie down, lie down in a fetal position. Maybe that's how you're going to be able to feel these feelings. You know, you're you're trying to hold them in a certain way. Then teacher Thich Nhat used to say, you know, if you're really, really angry, hold your anger like you're holding an angry child. Mm. Um, You know, we're developing a certain relationship, and and the term self-compassion has a lot to do with it because there are different elements of self-compassion, including what they call common humanity. You know, it's like, I am not the only person in the universe who ever experienced this. Right. Why am I so ashamed? Did I invite it? Why do I have to think I'm supposed to be in control all the time? But it's in a kind way. And we learn that because otherwise, well, most of us tend to have a conditioning 
where we do feel we blew it and we were failures. And so, you know, sometimes maybe our minds wander in meditation and then we add 45 minutes of judging to the wandering. So, you know, we emerge really exhausted and depleted and uh, demoralized. You know, we don't feel we can go on again. So we look at what's really useful and it's, it's much more this sense of self-compassion mm. and nurturing and caring and realizing this is a universal experience, all of this, and that we're going to learn how to pick up, pick up quickly, lessons learned, you know, and go on. And, and we do. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, you talk about love in your book that's going to come out in paperback in May, right? About mm-hmm. love. Can you talk about that? You also say there's love and there's fear, right? Is that is that what we have? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <Is that? laughs> Can you talk to us about that? Sure. The word that is mostly associated with the meditation practice is loving kindness mm-hmm. as a term. I've always been a little concerned with that because it tends to be not, for example, a term used in common conversation. And I'm afraid it makes the quality itself seem kind of foreign and removed from day-to-day life. And it really shouldn't. I've had scholars and translators say to me, well, just say love. That's what you mean, you know? Like, mm-hmm. You don't have to be so cutesy about it. Just say love. But love is a very complicated term for us. It, we mean many different things. And sometimes we really frankly mean a medium of exchange. Like, I will love myself as long as I never make a mistake. Or I will love you as long as right. the following 50 conditions are met. And we know the now, there's a state of fear, right? It's very unsteady. We're kind of leaning forward. We're out of balance. We feel we need. We're incomplete. That's a big state of fear. Mm-hmm. So when I think of love, I think as if I was kind of trying to redefine the term, I, I would say connection. It's a, a powerful sense of connection where we realize our lives have something to do with one another, which doesn't mean you like somebody. Right. Whether you can choose to spend time with them or that you approve of them, but your heart is kind of free in that recognition that we all want to be happy. We're also vulnerable to change and to loss. We can have a very different sense of connection. Mm-hmm. I think we see in our culture so much judgment, and we see it, you know, on a national level in our politics. We see it everywhere. And people judging and tearing down and how do we make an impact and and teach non-judgment? I think that, you know, the impact is at every, at every age. There are, you know, more mindfulness programs entering schools. It'd be interesting to see the correlation, if there is one, between bullying and, and mindfulness. Mm. You know, just think about the ways, given our last conversation, how difficult it is to feel some feelings. And, you know, instead of actually just getting the tools to feel them, we lash out. We're taught to lash out, some of us. And, mm-hmm. You know, it's it's quite fascinating. There's tremendous power in just learning how to feel our feelings. And, and part of both, in response to both questions, there's a different sense of community when people are supporting one another. In these ways, yeah, I, I'm, just, I'm sure this is a hard time. You're not alone, or you know, I haven't been through what you've been through, but I understand that kind of thing and just being there in a different way. And we have that possibility, which I think is is very profound. But it doesn't mean you're going to say yes to everyone or everything, or right. 
you know, you still have like common sense and wisdom and right. a sense of balance. It's also compassion for yourself as well as for someone else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It sounds so, in talking with you, you're so calm. You're yeah. just so calm. <laughs> <laughs> and it's contagious. It's, it really is. And, and it's something that I'm, I'm wondering. I really put everyone to sleep. <laughs> no, no, it's not. It's not sleepy. <laughs> it's calm. And, and I'm wondering, is, is it, do you, do you consciously take space all the time? And are you aware of the space that you create? Because with you and talking with you right now, the experience I'm having is I sense that you're hearing, you're listening, and then you respond. And I don't have the sense mm-hmm. of like, okay, did you hear me? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Do you get that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? There's I, a, I agree. And it comes through. It does. Through the microphone. Through the microphone. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Can you talk about that? I mean, is that is that something you... Just it just happens for you, <laughs> or or not, or am, or am I not making <laughs> yes. myself clear? And we have to edit this, Ian. <laughs> I'm profoundly grateful, unspeakably grateful for my practice. I, I mm. really name it as the source of the good things in my life. You yeah, know, you know that first lesson we learn in meditation after we see our attention wanders pretty quickly. Mm-hmm is to learn how to let go and begin again, like let go and come back. And it seems like absolutely nothing, very trivial. But in fact, it's very profound because maybe there you are in conversation with somebody and you realize you're not listening, you're not paying attention to them. You're thinking about your email, you're thinking about who else you'd rather be talking to and you realize that and you do exactly the same thing. You let go gently and you begin again. You come back, you gather your energy and you're really attentive, you're really there. And that's the basis for everything, for love, for compassion, mm. is really being fully attentive so that we're feeling the connection that mm. is there. Yeah. One of the things that I struggle with is that I like to make stories up in my head. <laughs> <laughs> Just about yeah. everything. Yeah, and we then, used to think it was like an intuitive thing, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, but now, we know, <laughs> now we know it's not a good thing. So people, we make stories mm-hmm. about things. And how do we talk ourselves into or out of those stories? <laughs> I don't know if it's so much talking ourselves out of them as having more of a sense of space or sense of perspective. Mm-hmm. Here's something I wrote in that book, Real Love. It has to do with stories. So, uh, actually, a lot of the book has to do with stories. Stories we tell ourselves about ourselves, stories mm-hmm. others tell us about us right. that we come to believe, and so on. But anyway, there's a section in it where I say that If you have a persistent voice, a persistent kind of character in your head who's like critical and puts you down and not in a useful way, but really just painful. If you have a character like that, like your inner critic, maybe give it a name, maybe give it a wardrobe, like Mm -hmm. give it a persona (laughs) because everything is going to be about relationship. You know, how am I relating to this voice? Lots of things can come up, but we just let them go. What do we take to heart? What do we believe? And so on. So. I say in in the book that, always with apologies to anyone reading it named Lucy, that I (laughs) named my own inner critic Lucy after the character in the Peanuts comic strip. A friend had once rented this large house for many of us to move into to do a retreat in. So when I went to there and I 
went to the bedroom that was going to be mine. I saw somebody left a cartoon on the desk from the Peanuts comic strip. And in the first frame, Lucy is talking to Charlie Brown and says, are you not Charlie Brown what your problem is? The problem with you is that you're you. <laughs> and then poor Charlie Brown says, what in the world can I do about that? <laughs> Lucy says, I don't pretend to be able to give advice. I merely point out the problem. <laughs> and somehow whenever I would do walking by that desk, my eye would fall right in that line. The problem with you is that you're you. Because <laughs> that Lucy voice had been so dominant in my earlier life. And so very soon after I saw the Lucy cartoon, something great happened for me. And my very first thought was, it's never going to happen again. And I greeted that thought with, hi, Lucy. <laughs> and I went yeah. on to what was really my favorite form, which was, chill out, Lucy. <laughs> you know, and it's really different than you're right, Lucy. You're always right. Yeah. I'm worth nothing and I never will be. Mm. Right. That's one kind of unskillful relationship to that thought. And then. The other one is like being so ashamed of what we're feeling and freaked out. We want to hide it. We're disparaging ourselves. You know, I've been meditating all these mm. years. Why do I still have Lucy coming to visit? Right. <laughs> I've been in therapy forever, and here's Lucy. <laughs> you know, I'm such a failure. So we're avoiding both extremes. One extreme is like diving into it and letting it define you, whatever the feeling is. And the other extreme is pushing it away. And trying to hide from it. And we say that with mindfulness, you slice right down the middle. So you're going to develop a different relationship with anything that comes up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. I go, I go one step further with Lucy in my head. She talks out loud, <laughs> and it comes in my voice. So I'll be, I'll be doing something, and I'll say, I'll hear myself saying, "You idiot! You idiot! Why are you doing?" I say it out loud. You know, I like naming, naming that. That yeah. person. Well, you know, it does help. I sometimes think maybe like I'm going a little crazy because I'll feel one way about something and then I'll sit back and then I'll feel another way about the same situation. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm just, mm -hmm. I feel like I'm a neophyte. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, like, yeah. yeah. Do you know what I mean? And so it's like, oh, yeah. yeah, it's like that. <laughs> maybe you could explain it better than what I just said. <laughs> I like that explanation. That you thought good. that made sense? Okay. Because it yeah. is. It's like your practice of changing the story. Like you're aware that yeah. that's not real. But then it's like mm -hmm. you're going back and forth. Yeah. I have a Tibetan teacher who has a phrase, it's real but not true. Yeah. 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 You know, it's real that you're really feeling it, but it's not true in that, you know, some of our thoughts are like so keyed in and so sensitive and so aware and some are like, so kind of wildly untrue, like the Lucy voice, you know, the problem with you is that you're you. That's not a true voice of truth. No. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so how would you describe, and I, I read this in Real Happiness a little bit about how when a practice is sort of a successful practice, you, how does that look? I would say for me, mm -hmm. A lot of, I pay a lot of attention to that coming back moment. Mm -hmm. You know, you're with whatever object of awareness, your attention wanders, you're completely lost, and then you sort of re-emerge. That moment is really an important moment. Um, you know, how do you speak to yourself? Are you getting kinder? You know, the metrics I'm interested in are those, it's those measurements. It's not like I could start out with only three breaths before I might wander, now I'm up to eight, you know. 
the other ones are really much more important. It's the coming back. It's the grace with which we come back. And I think that kind of identified self-judgment, you know, I'm such an angry person and I always will be. I'm such a terrible person. That kind of solidification, I think that starts to to loosen and to ease. And we can hold our painful experience much more with compassion and lightness mm-hmm. and we can actually enjoy our really beautiful experiences because that's a problem for people too, you know, right. let it in. It's not right. that easy. It's true. It's so true. Where we miss out on the joy on the, mm-hmm. when we're, we're not in the moment where, mm-hmm. you know, we, mm-hmm. we, we don't deal with the uncomfortable, but then we're missing out on the good, mm-hmm. on the living, on all of that. Sure. And can, yeah. can you talk about how mindfulness can help, you when you are actually in physical pain. How does that work? Mm -hmm. How does that work? I think it works really in a lot of different levels. One is kind of, you know, continuing in the frame in which I was talking before, you know, we have an experience and then we have everything we're adding on to the experience. And often it's the add-ons that take what's already a painful situation and make it, you know, terribly painful. It really changes the intent of the discomfort. So what do we tend to add on? The future, what's it going to feel like tomorrow? What's it going to feel like next mm-hmm. week? And a sense of dread and anticipation and till we can't differentiate between what's actually happening, what we're just imagining may happen. Mm-hmm. You know, even though we think it will happen, it actually may happen. And maybe not. You know, adding a sense of isolation. I'm the only one who ever feels anything like this or uh, kind of collapsing. So we are only at that pain. And you know, those are all just habits of mind that we all have, and and they get exercised. So the first thing we do is we learn to to see them pretty quickly and let go of them. So then we're back to the to the painful situation. And then if we have energy, we kind of go into it like the pain is actually not one solid thing. It's moments of let's say burning or um, pressure or something like that. And it begins to kind of break apart and. It still hurts, but it's like an alive system. It's not something static and oppressive, and it's it's a very different way of being with it. Mm. You teach the loving-kindness meditation. You write about it a lot. You talk and practice it, and in the meditation, you begin sending love to to the people you love and you know. And Anyway, Mm -hmm. on it goes on, and then you reach to the difficult people. So when you practice loving-kindness meditation and send love to difficult people, does that actually, can that actually change your heart and and how you feel about those difficult people? Yes, it can definitely change your heart. I thought you were going to ask something else. (laughs) What? What? It's probably a better question. Their behavior. (laughs) Yeah. People, was it, are they definitely going to get better? You know, yeah. like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, just people often ask that. No, it definitely can change your heart. That's what it's for. And it's not easy often. So, I, you know, one shouldn't be glib about it. But some of the greatest sense of liberation we can have is it's almost like recapturing our life for ourselves. There's one friend of mine put it. He's about someone he was kind of annoyed with and, and very obsessed with, too. You know, why they like that? They shouldn't be like that. He said, I realized I've let him live rent-free in my brain for far too long. So mm. true. You know, yeah. like we give over our time, our life energy, you know, our thinking to somebody who we can't change, you know? It's like you go through the list of that person's faults, and then again, and then again, and then again. You never even think of a new fault, you know? But it's like, okay, what are we Same old faults. <laughs> Same old flaws, so. 
you realize I set of compassion for myself that I want to kind of reclaim that energy. So let's see what I can. I mean, it's really ultimately they who have to suffer. You know, they mm-hmm. inhabit that mm-hmm. kind of emotional world, that vibrational world, and you know that affected us at one time or whatever. But they live in it. You know, so right. you really do have a kind of compassion for people. It's very genuine. How how do you define coincidence? Coincidence. <laughs> um, you know, I don't think in those terms so much. It's like a coincidence. How do I define coincidence? Well, I don't think everything is predetermined, you know. I right. think there can be surprises in that way. Right. There are forces, I think, that bring us together or that are are kind of amazing in, in some way. Like when I think about myself going to India at the age of 18, I'd never mm-hmm. even been to California before. I was going to <laughs> India. What was that about? Right. That drive and that intuition and that I was going just when, I mean, the people I met there that are still my closest friends. It was a long time ago, you know? What brought us all there at different times, Mm -hmm. you know, or different months, different places, different geographies. And there we were. And got something more than just happenstance, it feels like, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to us a little bit about taking your mindfulness practice out into the world and what that looks like and how mm-hmm. how important that is. I think it's really important and a good deal of it happens naturally in that, you know, we've, we've practiced. And so somebody once asked me, it was an interview for a magazine and they ended up never using my comments in the interview, in the article, but the journalist asked me something about like, how do you use mindfulness at a time of total crisis? And what I said in response was, I wouldn't wait. It's like, don't wait until the bottom's fallen out. And yeah. I mean, some people do, and hopefully they still get some support, you know, and some benefit. But mm-hmm. we don't have to wait. It's like strength training, like every day, you know. Mm-hmm. You just do the practice. And then when you really need it, it will be there for you. You know, people draw some tremendous support from their contemplative practice and, you know, really difficult circumstances. And, and it will be there for you. When we learn how to enjoy things more, that we really are paying attention, we're not multitasking always and not experiencing anything at all. Right. We're much more present, and we get to be really grateful about that. What is your daily practice? What does your daily practice look like? How did you get to well, be you? Just, <laughs> how do we get to be like you? <laughs> just me. Thank you. Um, no, it's just like, I think they're really also is in response to your, your previous question, there are two ways to view practice. One is like a formal dedicated period of practice. doesn't have to be sitting, doesn't have to be sitting in a certain posture, could be lying down, could be walking, but it's a time when your only intention is to try to cultivate things like concentration and mindfulness mm-hmm. and loving kindness. And so other things, of course, may happen, but your intention is, is that cultivation. So maybe that's 10 minutes a day. Maybe that's 15 minutes a day. It could be longer. Neuroscientists, friends of mine, tell me that um, the latest studies are showing something like seven to nine minutes of meditation a day will change your brain in all the ways they talk about changing your brain. But then there's also a kind of practice which is just in the moment with activity. One teacher I met in Himalaya has called it short moments many times. You know, you want to have just a few moments of breathing that help break up the momentum of the meeting, which is getting very intense. Mm-hmm. Or you don't have to have everyone else breathe. You can breathe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And, you know, you want a moment where you're just pausing, say, before a meeting, where you have 
the opportunity of remembering what you really want to see come out of the meeting, things like that. And so it's just short moments many times. And uh, many many of us, we just need a signal. You know, that's why maybe the most famous one these days is Thich Nhat Hanh. We said, uh, don't pick up the phone on the first ring. Let it ring three times and breathe. And then you pick it up. Mm. Or, you know, maybe... Sometimes just drink that cup of tea or coffee rather than multitasking. Right. You know, even Mm -hmm. just now and then. Mm -hmm. Things like that. And they're so enjoyable. And, you know, walk down the hallway rather than walk down the hallway while texting. Right. Um, Yeah. And, you know, they're really enjoyable. And the best way, I think, to make sure they get done, you know, that it's really an experiment, not just stories, as you say is to also have that dedicated period. You know, say let's just say 10 minutes a day. Mm-hmm. And one day you don't have 10 minutes, you only have three, do three, it's fine. But it's kind of the everydayness of it that makes it strong. Mm-hmm. Oh, the time goes by so I fast. Oh. But we, we want to quickly ask you the questions we ask all of our guests. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll start with what book do you think everyone should read? Well, my favorite book of poetry is by this woman, Naomi Shihab Nye. It's called Words Under the Words. Mm. It's a collection of her poems. And the one poem of hers that maybe is most widely known is called Kindness. Beautiful line. Before you know kindness is the deepest thing inside, you must also know sorrow is the other deepest thing. Yes, Yes, we love that poem. Beautiful poem. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, What quote brings you strength and peace? Uh, The one that's probably been most important for me is from Rilke, who said something like, don't be frightened if a sadness greater than you've ever known before Mm -hmm. rises up in front of you. Life has not forgotten you. Beautiful. That's beautiful. Sharon, what would you say to your 30-year-old self? It's going to get better. <laughs> <laughs> and then your favorite meal? Oh, I'd say Indian food. It makes brings it all back, those mm-hmm. early, early years. Mm-hmm. And then the last question. Who would you like, if you could sit next to anyone tonight at <laughs> dinner, who would that be? Lin-Manuel Miranda. Oh, oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, Trish and I just saw <laughs> Hamilton recently. So, I just went in London two nights ago. Oh, you did? Oh, you did? So oh. fun. Yeah. Wasn't it wonderful? Have you seen it before? It was, well, yeah, I had seen it before. And it actually is a very important work for me and kind of showing me something about writing and so on. And right. The quality of the heart. Anyway, it's in the grateful acknowledgments to my book. Oh, uh, that's <laughs> awesome. Well, we're excited to read Real Love, mm-hmm. and we hope everyone reads it and all your books. And we're so grateful to you for joining us today. And Sharon, yes. Thank you so much. You're amazing. Oh, well, thank you so much. Thank you for all your work. Take care, and thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well. <laughs> <laughs>